Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a special Warner Archive podcast because we're celebrating the release of a spectacular new book, John Wayne, The Life and Legend, and the author of this book, who's a wonderful author of so many great film books and someone I've been pleased to speak with personally over the years, Mr. Scott Iman is joining us via telephone. And Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferrante are here to join in the celebration of this John Wayne book that we're going to talk about. I prefer coffee clatch. <laughs> Over the back fence. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Out yeah. of a tin cup. Absolutely. My first question is, you've written about filmmakers and you've written about producers. Is this your first book about a performer? No, my very first book ever was about Mary Pickford. Ah. My motivating factor with that book was I wanted to write about silent movies. So I kind of circled around, okay, well, who made good silent movies was a major figure who really needs a good book, you know? So I nominated myself. But I wanted to write about silent movies, so I wrote this book about Mary Pickford. And, then I kind of, and that led me to Lubitsch because researching Pickford, I saw Rosita which kind of turned my head around because it wasn't at all the kind of movie that everybody said it was. And it got me thinking about Lubitsch, and from Pickford I went on to Lubitsch. And then I think John Ford. No, Speed of Sound. Speed of Sound, then John Ford. So I kind of got off onto a filmmaker niche. And, you know, maybe I stayed too long at the fair. I'm not sure. But the thing about filmmakers is that actors tend to get hired and tend to do what they're told, whereas producers and directors and studio heads are the ones that hire them and ones that tell them what to do. So I kind of gravitated towards where the power was centered. But with John Wayne, because he embodied a lot of independence and basically he told studios what he wanted to do as opposed to the other way around, it was kind of a natural progression. And of course, I'd done the two books on John Ford earlier who is a great passion of mine. So it was kind of out there in the middle distance. And frankly, if someone else had done a really bang-up job on John Wayne, I wouldn't have. But I didn't think he'd been terribly lucky in his biographers. No, he certainly hadn't. And, and that's what I was struck by, that you've given him a whole new level of respect. Mm-hmm. I think this book is going to be smashingly received, and we've certainly been excited about it. Oh, thanks. Once I made the decision... And once I looked back over what I had left over from the John Ford project, and I figured, okay, now who's, who's left, who's alive that I could still get to? And Gretchen Wayne was crucial because she opened up the files of the Batjack organization to me, and, which was all the financial information and all of his correspondence with Charlie Feldman, his agent. Stuff I didn't even know existed. When John Wayne died, Mike Wayne, his son and, and the guy that ran Batjack, commissioned a group of interviews. Uh, I suspect he was planning a biography, but the biography never happened. But somebody that Mike hired went around and talked to people about John Wayne. And some of the people I knew about, Ollie Carey, you know, uh, the wife of, of Harry Carey Sr. Other people, I never even knew these people existed. There was an interview with a man named Benjamin DeLoach, for instance, who had been part of John Wayne's USO tour for three or four months during World War II. And Ben DeLoach was a singer, and he was one of the original cast members of Alvin Berg's Waltzek. And after the war, he became a teacher of voice at Yale University. So I'm reading this extremely articulate and extremely culturally sophisticated academic taped, uh, interview taped in 1980 or 81 about 
working with John Wayne during World War II. <laughs> I didn't know they'd ever intersected, you know, if it hadn't been for this interview, sitting in the files at Batjack all those years. That was huge. Getting to people like Ron Howard and uh, Bob Relly, the assistant director on the Alamo, who was just incredibly helpful to me because he'd worked at MGM. He'd worked with William Wyler on Children's Hour. He'd worked uh, with John Sturgis. He'd worked with Robert Wise. He'd worked with just totally A-list professionals. And from them, he went to John Wayne on Wayne's first directorial picture uh, shooting in Texas, The Alamo, a film I think is frankly underrated. And Bob was just a hugely perceptive guy because he did, assistant directors don't have egos particularly. They're there to service the picture and service the director. Their ego doesn't precede them into the room. So he was completely objective and completely selfless, and, and he became a successful producer years later on his own when he produced all the Steve McQueen pictures for Warner Brothers, Bullet and Lamont. Well, that wasn't done at Warner Brothers, but, but he produced a number of, of successful pictures on his own. So finding guys like Bob and some stuntmen and, and Ron Howard, you know, it was actually a lot of fun to do the book. Much more fun than I thought it would be from the start, actually. So, take it you've been working on this for several years. 2009. That's how long I've been working here. <laughs> <laughs> I actually knew Bob Relier became head of physical post-production at the reconstituted UA in the mid-90s during my later years at MGMUA before I came no to kidding. He Warner was a Brothers. Great guy. He was I, a I wonderful man. And, in fact, I was involved with the Laserdisc on Alamo when we found that uncut the print. The 70-millimeter print? The print that was in Alaska. You know, that's mm-hmm. why I wish we, mm-hmm. we owned that here because we, we'd bring that back out again. You know, I had to find a dub of that Laserdisc to <laughs> see the uncut Alamo. That's the only way to see it. I would have said you mine. I still have one, you know. Oh, it was not easy. You know, Bob was one of those guys who'd spent, I mean, he was an AD when he was in his 20s. He was a young guy when he got into the industry. And he'd spent, you know, a half a century in the business. And those are the guys that know where all the bodies are buried because a lot of the times they had to dig the graves themselves. And Bob was absolutely honest. And he, he said the most interesting thing. He said is in terms of camera, in terms of technical expertise, in terms of knowing shots and knowing how to work with a crew, he said, John Wayne was every bit as expert as William Wyler or John Sturgis. He said the problem was that he didn't have patience. He couldn't really talk to an actor. He couldn't take 15 minutes out and talk to an actor about the scene or the part. He said, and you can't underestimate how important that is to actors, you know? So in that sense, that was the only area, he thought, in which Wayne fell short as a director. He didn't really have that patience that you have to have to nurture a performance out of an actor. And that's interesting, given in the book how much you detail his real experience coming up through production ranks. You very much approach filmmaking as, as a craft, and then we, you see like perhaps he's not as patient with the actors because he's used to just getting it done. Well, also, he had a massive locomotive inside him. And he simply presumed that everybody could do what he could do. And if he could do it, why couldn't they do it? It was a simple A plus B equals C equation to him. But of course, everybody doesn't have that massive locomotive and everybody had other people might not have the self-confidence about themselves in front of the camera that he did uh, after a certain point in his life. That was his shortcoming as a director. His decisiveness 
was one of his greatest attributes. But, you know, our greatest attributes are usually our biggest drawbacks as well. It's just a question of can we modify them in order to, you know, make it work for other people around us. And that was the one area where he had trouble. What you were able to do by uh, getting to all these sources, and I think maybe this is the thesis of your book, is, you know, who or what is John Wayne? And you start to peel that construct of Wayne, you know, out of all the legend and, you know, what what's inside. And you go into how, as a personality, as, you know, who he was, had all this uh, compartmentalization. And that was almost in a way like how he was able to achieve what he did. Mm-hmm. How did you find that, you know, definition of John Wayne? Well, I had this, like, I write in the book, in the beginning about my own experience with him, which was fragmentary. It was 90 minutes. And, you know, a couple of years later, I was on the set of The Shootist for a couple hours, his last picture. And he'd aged greatly in the three years between when I met him in, in August of 72 and when he was shooting The Shootist. But, I mean, I sat in his dressing room for 90 minutes and we talked. And I was just a 21-year-old kid, you know, not terribly, not uh, with a couple of bylines, to my credit, but no credentials to speak of. And I didn't ask him about cancer, and I didn't ask him about conservative politics. All I asked him about was movies. We talked about John Ford and Henry Hathaway and John Huston. He really disliked John Huston intensely. He would, he started to, he would kind of like start to breathe heavily, like a, locom- like a locomotive building up ahead of steam. Just talking about John Huston would get him agitated. It was really funny. So I kind of got off that subject because I, I didn't want to derail the interview. But because all we talked, all I wanted to talk, I was a kid with longer hair, longer hair than he liked, I'm sure. But because I was a young kid, I was 21, and I was more or less on his wavelength when it came to movies, you know, there was a simpatico established. And he was a little bit like that guy on screen, but he was also unlike that guy on screen. He was calmer, he was quieter, he was more reflective, he was almost contemplative, in a sense because he would delineate the differences between Ford and Hawks and Hathaway, for instance, in dealing with actors, in just a couple sentences apiece. And he would talk about camera, you know, how they handle camera, how Ford handled camera compared to how Hathaway handled camera. It was very interesting. And he'd worked all this out in his mind. This was not, it's, I don't think this was all occurring to him as we talked, you know, because he'd actually processed all this over the years, watching these wonderful artists work. I realized, I didn't realize it quite at the time, what I realized in retrospect years later, after he died and in thinking about him, is that he was a journeyman film man in the sense that everybody likes the money you make in the movies and everybody likes the glory end of the movies and the publicity and the attention and all that, but very few people like the process of making movies. You know, you shoot for 30 seconds, you wait for 20 minutes. You shoot for another 30 seconds, you wait for an hour. And that's what drives people crazy because it's very hard to maintain a level of psychological attentiveness for that kind of process. Wayne liked it. He liked the process of making movies. He liked everything about it. He was the first guy on the set at 7 a.m. or earlier, and he was the last guy to leave. He didn't leave the set. When they were changing the camera setup, he'd get a chess game going or read a newspaper or hang out with the stuntmen or do something. But he liked the process. He liked the social aspect of making movies. He liked the people 
that you met making movies. So he was that way because he'd come up in the blue-collar ranks of the filmmaking family. He'd propped, he'd done stunts, he'd done costume, he'd done all these craft work, all these craft services that go into the making of the movies that no one pays any attention to, then or now, you know, except maybe an Oscar night, but nobody really cares, except the people that make the movies. They know how crucial all these people are. And he enjoyed all those various skills, and he enjoyed the people that did all those various skills. So in that sense, he wasn't a typical movie star. He was more like a journeyman film man who had, by huge, huge effort, made himself into a star. As I write in the book, he was a natural movie star. He was not a natural actor. He had to learn to be a greatly skilled actor, but he was an extremely charismatic, born movie star. But he had to learn the craft of acting first. And would you say that that probably accounts for the almost 10 years between you know, his early film appearances and then really hitting that first wave of recognition stardom with Stagecoach? If Stagecoach had been handed to him in 1931 or two. He wouldn't it have wouldn't have worked. Right. It wouldn't have worked because he didn't have the skill set. And then it would have really. been haunted gold. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the haunted gold or those or those Schlesin, Leon Schlesinger pictures that Warner that he did at Warner Brothers, for instance, aren't good. They're actually better than the monograms, the Lone Stars, I think, and I write in the book because the level of production's higher. But those movies didn't demand anything of him. You know, they demanded his easy charm. He had a lovely smile. He could ride. He could stunt. He could do all that stuff. But they didn't make any dramatic demands on him. And dramatic demands is what he had to come up with when Ford finally tapped him on the shoulder and said, oh, by the way, you're the Ringo kid. In those 10 years, he'd learned his craft. He'd done it by watching and working and studying. And if you look at a John Wayne B. Western from 1937 or 38 in terms of performance, and you compare it to one he did in 1931 or 32, it's light years away. Now, the material is not much better, but he's much better. He's learned a lot. He's not co- he hasn't been coasting at all. He's been working at his craft and working hard at his craft. And then when Ford taps him on the shoulder and he's gotten a script, which is a, really, a real piece of writing, a beautifully structured piece of dramatic writing, he's actually got something to carry. If Ford forces him to raise the level of his game even above that point at which he had brought it himself by 1937 or 38. I think one of the interesting things for people listening to this, this has nothing to do with the Warner Archive collection, but our colleagues at Warner Home Video have put together a 36-disc, 40-film set of John Wayne that goes from the six Leon Schlesinger hour-long movies right through to the shootest because it also combines the Paramount films that really? we currently, yes, we currently distribute. So this box set of 40 films is coming out in May, right? Well, isn't that an odd coincidence? When I heard you were writing this book, I mentioned to Jeff Baker, who is the head of our theatrical catalog at Warner Home Video, I said, you know, if you add the Paramounts that we're distributing, plus the films that we own, including, of course, the MGMs and whatnot, I said, you put it all together, RKO, it's 40 films, 40 films, John Wayne, won't that make a great box set? 
because, you know, what a great thing for Father's Day. And and Jeff was all over it. So I'm glad to be the first one to tell you about it. Most John Wayne film fans have these movies already, but there are, I always think, a new generation of John Wayne film fans born every couple of years because he just doesn't date. They may not have the Schlesinger pictures, you know. They might not have some of the Wayne Fellows pictures. That's a huge, huge batch of films. That's just wonderful news. And it, it does news. show all the, di- you know, yes, they were expendable in there and Big Jim McClain. And we also oh, yeah. have some of these same films in Warner Archive Instant, which uh, is our new streaming service. And Wings of Eagles we just mm-hmm. added in high def, mm-hmm. which is really, really an amazing, not talked about that often movie where he's playing he's not it's not a western mm-hmm. not a typical John Ford. No, no, no. But it's, it's a, a it's love a strange letter. picture in many ways, but it's a uh, it doesn't start off well. It starts off kind of lumpy, but it really kicks in about halfway through and it it becomes one of his most impressive performances, I think. We just talked about it on our weekly podcast yeah, we did, not yeah. long ago because we were all excited to see it in HD. These are almost uh, for a lot of people alternate John Wayne's, you know, cuz they're usually only think of him as being out Right, on a horse. And he was a lot more than that. I mean, I I think if you'd asked him, he'd say that was okay if people thought of him that way, because he really was passionate about the Western as a form. And because of Ford, who was, you know, his mentor, his father figure, it was such a complicated relationship. And because of Ford's passion for the form. I think he'd be okay if people thought of him basically as the guy on the horse, but he was a lot more than that. You look at the performances in pictures like they were expendable or in harm's way, and they are really graceful, subservient performances. He's stepping back in in the same way he does in Fort Apache, for instance, where he does not carry the plot. He's there. He's the second lead, really, uh, and he doesn't carry the plot, and... They're very, very graceful performances. It shows you just what his level of skill was and how well he could play the various colors in the instrument, you know, in in the instruments he had. He didn't have to be the guy giving orders at all. I really respect that about him, that he he could uh, back off and let Robert Montgomery essentially take the star part in Expendable. Of course, that was Ford telling him to do that. In pictures like In Harm's Way and everything, again, everybody else is pushing the plot forward, and he's not. You know, he's reacting to having the plot pushed forward by Kirk Douglas and, and you know, uh, Henry Fonda and all these other people. So congratulations on that set. That's really nice. Now, you bring it up in the book that he is really was much more comfortable as an ensemble actor, which is sort of ironic since he's such a leading man, leading man. But, I mean, that's apparent in, like, you know, like films like Rio Bravo, which is three guys hanging out. Yeah, for, a, for two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's a song, and then there's another song. <laughs> and it's one of the best movies movies ever. But I think that was because he, there were a couple people, let me put it this way, if Bud Bedecker had directed Real Bravo, there wouldn't have been any songs, because he trusted Hawks in a way, because Hawks unlocked a whole characterization for him with Red River, that he may not have, that Ford may not have unlocked, you know, would Ford have made the searchers if he didn't know that Wayne could have played the part because he played Red River, you know? And Ethan Edwards is kind of Tom Dunson times five. Yeah. But the key is Tom Dunson. That's what showed him that, that Wayne could do that. And that was Hawks. Hawks gave him that, I think I call it the missing arrow in his quiver. Because up until Tom Dunson, he essentially played nice guys. They were occasionally driven, you know, and focused and aggressive, but they were basically good guys. Here, 
he's playing a real bastard. This is a guy who'll kill you if you get in his way. He really will. And he's not a nice guy. He's not a nice guy. And he's playing it without blinking. He's playing it without trying to cozy up to the audience and wink and show them that you know he's not really like this guy. He's not putting any division between the actor and the part, which is what actors often do when they're playing a part they're not comfortable with. They turn on the charm. They smile all the time. You know, They do everything possible so that the audience won't take them that seriously. Wayne wouldn't do that. He played those hard men that he played for all they were worth. And he didn't try to make the audience like him. He didn't have that fatal actor's disease of needing to be liked. He wanted to be respected as an actor. And he would play the character all the way in order to get that respect. And in that sense, I think Red River is the key film in his career next to Stagecoach. That's interesting because when you also talked about that aspect of his character, when I watched, uh, when I read your description of The Searchers, I immediately, at the end of that chapter, watched the film again because I was able to call it right up. And it was just a fantastic entree back into that film, your description in the book. So what you're saying is this new 40-disc film collection is the perfect companion to John Wayne, the life and legend. Page by page. You can go through <laughs> yeah, from, that, that from the Schlesinger could. pictures and watch those. And then keep <laughs> Read moving, and you know. watch. I would right do to that. Stagecoach. Takes you to Stagecoach. I would have to say, just from a personal standpoint, when I was a kid, the film that really struck me of taking John Wayne as a great actor in a way that I hadn't experienced before was She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. That is the most, the first of his many most poignant moving performances. That I know, and if me, you look at that, you mentioned earlier that I referred to his sense of how he could compartmentalize. He did Red River, he did She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and he did Three Godfathers, and he did Sands of Iwo Jima. Now those are four major performances and four major films. And he did them within the space of, I think, three years, from 1946 to 1949, while his marriage was falling apart, while his second marriage was hitting the rocks and crashing and burning. So this is like, these are four of his seminal performances all done while his private life was in basically utter chaos. And Three Godfathers is is kind of unique in the sense that, that's another film, by the way, that we have in the... Warner Archive Instant streaming in HD. HD. It's the third re- remake of that story, or the or was yeah. it the fourth? Well, there was didn't four do one in the silent era? Right. Then there's the 1930 Wyler one. There's right? the 36. Is that, Hell's, is that Hell's Heroes? That's yes, Hell's Heroes, and then the 36 Boleslavsky. So that's Wyler. Then there's Boleslavsky. Right. The 36. So yeah, the Ford is I think the fourth version. And the definitive one. That's what everybody mm-hmm. thinks of when they think. Well, it's, it's the most romantic. It's certainly the most romantic, and I can't honestly say that I think it's the equal of She Wore Yellow Ribbon or The Searchers, but I love it. No, I, I, I put agree it like with you. high on that second tier because I love the clarity of it. I love the photography is extraordinary, and it reminds you of what a profoundly Catholic artist John Ford was, as if we needed to be reminded. It's a more successful film, I think, for a modern audience than, say, The Informer is today which is also another film that reminds you how profoundly Catholic he was. I think Three Godfathers is a beautiful film, especially that ending, you know, singing, bringing in the sheaves while, you know, Wayne goes off to jail, impeccably composed shot. And it's a little bit atypical. Uh, and I yeah. think that that's what, what makes it so special. But the diversity of his career, and uh, I think it's all in, captured so magnificently mm-hmm. in this book. And his private life is not a very happy one, and you deal with it 
in a very, I think, austere way that's just very matter-of-fact, very realistic, yeah. very poignant. And there's the conflict of the his career really was his primary passion. That's what mm-hmm. I came away with. Yeah, I, I would classify him as a workaholic, frankly. And is, is often the case. It doesn't, you know, I mean, there's certainly a lot of that in the film business or, or in the book business or in the, just the, you know, the arts. His main area of intent, his main area of effort went into his work. And basically, uh, although he adored family and he was a gr- very good father, by and large, and an excellent grandfather, his grandchildren adored him because he was a, you know, throw you up in the air and catch you kind of grandfather. He'd like to make movies, and he'd go off and make a movie, and he'd come back and say, boy, am I glad to be home. In about two weeks, he'd get restless. And in three weeks, he'd be pacing back and forth. He needed to be back on a film set. So what exactly is that? And as Rod Taylor told me, he didn't really have a sports team he followed. He didn't have any hobbies particularly other than making movies. That would have made it difficult for him to enjoy just being with a woman and relaxing and going out to dinner and watching a movie or going out with friends because in the back of his mind he was always thinking, well, should I make this script or that script? And, and is Pappy going to call me or should I make this picture with Hawks? You know, his mind was kind of on the work. And I think, you know, he paid a price for it in his private life. Why do you think that his because he's one of the few performers who still is so vital. And, you know, he's been gone now for 35 years, yeah. if in my mind. He's been dead for 30, which is a long time. Yeah. Why does he still have a, a public profile? Why is he still so relevant and mag- uh, magnetic? There's a lot of great movie stars who are locked in their period. And they don't transcend their period for whatever reason. When Wayne became a star in 1939, the biggest star, biggest male star in the business, unquestionably, was Clark Gable, and remained the biggest star in the business for probably another 15 years, until the advent of Marlon Brando. Clark Gable today, I don't think, has anywhere near the recognition factor that you expect him to have for being the biggest movie star in the business for close to 20 years. And I attribute that to the fact that he didn't make that many good movies. He was a company man. He did what MGM gave him to do. If you think about Clark Gable, you're thinking of maybe four movies. You're thinking of It Happened One Night. You're thinking of Gone with the Wind. You're thinking maybe of Magambo and maybe The Misfits. What else is there? Really? Wayne had a good batting average. You talk about major John Wayne pictures, there's 10 or 12. Oh, yeah. Easily. Easily. And then there's that second tier that's not really down that much. So you're, and he was lucky in that he bonded so strongly with Ford and Hawks, and he became their go-to guy, you know, their go-to leading man. If Ford had bonded with Gary Cooper, would Gary Cooper have the same public profile today in the 2014 that John Wayne does? Possibly. Possibly not. Cooper was very attuned to fear. Cooper could portray fear beautifully. And he would conquer fear in the course of the movie. If you think about the great Cooper performances, High Noon, Love in the Afternoon, for instance, yeah, where he's afraid of commitment. You know, he's the carefree bachelor who won't. You know, and at the end, he might have just got Man of the West, Sergeant York, what they all are. But in all of them, he goes through a trial of indecision and fear, and can I do this? And finally, does it, Mister Deeds, to an extent. Wayne's process, Wayne's character is different than that. 
He's afraid, but he never shows it. We know it. The other characters don't see it, though. He may be worried, but he doesn't let the other characters see his worry or fear. The audience gets it. Island in the Sky, for instance, which is, a, I think, a major picture that Wellman did that, that was sat on by Batjack for 30 years. I think it's a beautiful picture. That's, you know, as close as he ever came to playing a guy who's really doesn't know if he's going to survive and doesn't know how to get through the next hour, you know. But he pulls it together for the sake of the men. I think Wayne was lucky in that he bonded so strongly with Ford. And for, you talk about batting average. Who had a better batting average than John Ford as a director? And Ford worked a lot. Ford would make two pictures a year, you know, because he could. And uh, they were strong pictures. Gable, Gable had, you know, was too passive in his choices. And even after he went freelance from MGM, his batting average really didn't pick up much. He was happy to make, you know, time passers for Raoul Walsh. The Tall Men and Four Kings and a Queen or Four Queens and a King or whatever it's the called. The King and Four Queens with Eleanor the King Parker. And four queens. Yeah, they're, <laughs> Another they're United the, Artists classic. Another not our, classic. Not our film, so I can trash it. Those are pictures you need to see once. Yeah, and that that's perfectly fine. I mean, And Red River and The Searchers and Rio Bravo and Fort Apache, those are pictures you can watch all your life. And they were expendable and they will seem different to you and deeper to you at different times of your life as you gain more experience. I think you've hit the nail on the head because I just watched again about two months ago True Grit, which I hadn't seen since I was a kid at Radio City Music Hall. And I, I was like, oh, it's probably not as good as I remember it. Yeah, it was. It is. I mean, it is. Except for Glenn Campbell. Except for Glenn. <laughs> well, Let's we, be honest. <laughs> he, he, he's, not, he's no good. But Hathaway gets around him well. I yes, thought. he does. <laughs> you know, Hathaway gets around him well. And it's beautifully shot. My God, Lucian Bauer did a great job on that picture. That performance is just spectacular. It really is. I think the film holds up beautifully. Uh, you know, and if he was going to get an Oscar for late work, would the shootest have been more appropriate? Probably. Oh, yeah. Probably. But, you know, not enough people saw The Shootist. He wasn't even getting nominated for The Shootist, let alone win. I remember coming out of seeing The Shootist and saying, he's going to get an Oscar for that, you know, and he didn't even get nominated. All of these things just are hopefully going to inspire everybody out there listening mm-hmm. to go out and get Scott's new book from Simon & Schuster. It's called John Wayne, The Life and the Legend, and it is a massive undertaking that has been beautifully executed by Mr. Scott Iman. And Scott, we thank you so much for joining us today for this special Warner Archive podcast to salute John Wayne and your new book. It's been a pleasure. I love what you guys do. Anything I can do for you, you just let me know. And if you enjoyed this interview, you can also hear Scott give commentary on our release of Westward the Women. Yes. Oh, I'm, yeah. I, <laughs> most definitely. And hopefully we will do more together. I would love to. So in the meantime, we want to thank you all for listening to this Warner Archive Collection podcast. Have a great day.